If you're trying to stay focused on getting work done and eating throughout the day is something you think about, have to decide, and you're not sure what to do, and you just wish an option was available where the right meal with all of the specifications you want be available to you, easy to make, under two minutes, well, luckily for you, Factor is available where you have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie. And you can enjoy over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons to help you make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? You can get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking up for something fast that's upscale option done very easily. It's flexible on your schedule where you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. No prep necessary. They're 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup necessary. Head to factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and use code sellingwithlove50 to get 50% off. That's code sellingwithlove50 at factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and you'll get 50% off. Not bad. A lot of working parents who maybe live in a place where their kids have been sent home from school, now they're trying to work while juggling having kids home from school. They could leverage all of the inefficiency and obfuscation and the hyperactive hive mind to kind of get away with the reality that they're going to have to do much less work. But their bosses don't really want to acknowledge that. They don't want to talk about it. No one wants to deal with it. So we just sort of obfuscate and we kind of get away with it in the hive mind. If you are using a really optimized process-based system, that wouldn't work. You would have to have a really frank conversation. Like, this is what's happening. We have to change expectations. We have to accommodate this. This is an emergency. So it's an important and somewhat fraught point. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Hey, everybody that listens to Superhumans at Work, know that all of these episodes are recorded with a live studio audience. Mindvalley members get a chance to join these sessions with the author themselves while we record these sessions. And at the end of every show, they actually get to participate in a Q&A session as well. If ever you're interested in joining Mindvalley All Access and become a member yourself, you'll get access to all the incredible courses from Mindvalley and so much more to be involved with Superhumans at Work, the Mindvalley podcast, and all the other incredible features when you become a member. We are disrupting the way that education works for the 21st century, and we want you to be a part of it. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman so you can learn more about this incredible offer, which will cost you less than $2 a day. That's mindvalley.com forward slash S-U-P-E-R-H-U-M-A-N. Now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to another episode of Superhumans at Work. I have a legend in the field with us today, Cal Newport himself. And if you're not familiar with Cal's work, his man has written so many books, which have been game changer in the world of productivity, that you're going to want to pick up every single one of them and go deep within his work because everything he puts together is amazing. Now, if you're not familiar with him, he is an associate professor at Georgetown University. Some of his seven books that you might have heard of include Digital Minimalism, Deep Work, and his his latest upcoming book is about a world without email, reimagining work in a world of communication overload. 
Are you feeling overloaded at work? Do you feel like emails just keep coming in and you can't stay on top of them? We're going to go dive deeper into what does this mean about a world without email? Can it serve us in being more productive? And how do we adapt in this overload of communication world? I love that one of the things he has been dubbed as is the Mary Kondo of technology. For those of you who like the word decluttering, well, maybe you can do this within your own digital life so that you can get the real things done. Cal Newport is with us. Cal, thank you so much for being here. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cal, I need to start with a bit of a story because I remember I went to a conference. So me and the executive team at Mindvalley, a few of us were traveling for some amazing conferences. We went to one which was actually out in Dallas, Fort Worth. You were a keynote speaker there. This is when you were speaking about your deep work concept. And we went there, we were so fascinated by it that we actually made a major shift at Mindvalley where we started implementing company-wide deep work times just because of the inspiration we had in your work. And so I kind of want to start with your journey. Like you went into deep work, decluttering, you're talking about like age of distraction, now email. What's this obsession? What's this passion that's got you always looking at how to maximize output with people? Well, the origin of deep work is actually a little bit more accidental, So before Deep Work, I had published a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which had really nothing directly to do with productivity. It was a book that answered the question, how do people end up loving what they do for a living? I had written the book because I was going from a transition from grad student into academia. I wanted to understand, okay, how do people end up loving what they do for a living? Interesting backstory to that conference you were talking about. I showed up there down in Texas thinking I was giving a talk on so good they can't ignore you. And the night before, the organizer of the conference was like, "Eh, we'd rather you talk about this new thing, deep work. And so the talk you saw, I cobbled together basically on the fly. So I'm glad that that worked out. But this book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, talked about the importance of skill. That oftentimes, instead of people just following their passion, they match their job to their passion, and that's why they love their work. There's often a skill-building phase. As they get so good, they can't be ignored. This gives them a lot of leverage over their career, and with that leverage, they craft it towards things they really enjoy. So I published that. The follow-up question was, okay, well, how do I get good at things? How do I become so good I can't be ignored? And so I was thinking about this question, And I did have a productivity mindset because before that book, I'd written three books for students. I used to do a lot of advice for students. So I I had thought a lot about systems of productivity for students. So I had that in the background. And when I was thinking about this question of in just general knowledge work, how do people get really good? I came across this idea of, well, concentration seems to be important. I knew this because at the time I was training in the, you know, in the theory group at MIT and then on to be a theoretical computer science professor. So I was in this weird field in which concentration was talked about a lot and seen as a tier one skill. And as I was really thinking about it, I had this aha moment that, wait a second, concentration, the ability to focus is way more relevant than in just elite fields like professional thinkers or writers. And as I really looked into this topic more and more, that book, Deep Work, was born, right? Basically made the argument, concentration without distraction is very important for almost any cognitive work. And we're forgetting that and we don't care about that. And it's a problem. So I sort of stumbled into this topic of how we use our brain matters. And then once you implemented deep work, for those who are not familiar, we're talking about actually putting aside everything that distracts you and just getting that big thing done, just chunking out that time, because there's so many things that come up in our lives. And I want to touch a bit on a previous book that you wrote, which was all about the fact that we have so much distractions coming up. Like we talked about digital minimalism. Can you just touch on this before we get to email? 
is what are we seeing about the digital space right now? Because I'm even seeing in the chat, we have a live audience with us right now from the Mindvalley members. Of course, if you're curious to become a member, go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. And they're talking about how, you know, pings, notifications, social media, all these things are distracting us. What are we seeing as a trend there? And what should we be doing about it? Right. So deep work was about the world of work. And one of the reactions to that book was, well, what about what tech is doing in our life outside of work, like our phones, social media, YouTube, video games for a lot of people. There was this growing unease that really began pretty soon after Deep Work came out. I really picked up this unease around 2017 is when it really began to pick up. So digital minimalism was on this question. Why are we getting uneasy about our relationship with our technology outside of the context of work? And the answer I came up with is we're using it much more than we want to. So it's less about is exactly what I'm doing right now when I look at my phone, is that somehow good or bad? Kind of besides the point. The thing that's making people uneasy is how often they're doing that thing on the phone and Mm -hmm. what they're missing out on because of that. It's not that like, okay, looking at your friend's Facebook page is bad. It's that you're looking at your friend's Facebook page when you're trying to do bath time with the kids. Well, that's actually more important, yet I still feel myself drawn to it. So the book gets into how we got there, why we look at our phones too much, and then the question of what we should do instead. And I advocate for a philosophy I call digital minimalism, which is a philosophy in which you work backwards from here's what I want to do in my life, what I care about, what I value, how I want to spend my time. Once you figure that out, then you say, which technologies do I want to use to serve that? And now that I know why I'm using these technologies, I can put some rules around how. So you just very carefully deploy technologies to get very specific bits of value out of them and are otherwise happy to miss out on everything else. So if you deploy this philosophy, for example, there's a lot of tech you might use, there's a lot of tech you won't use, but you're really unlikely to be someone who's spending a lot of time, for example, looking at TikTok. Brilliant. And if you haven't picked up already for all my listeners here, if you are going to Amazon on any time today and you see anything from Cal Newport, pick up every one of his books, because if you want to have a great thing to be going to support you in your productivity, your personal life, this man writes amazing things that are highly effective, which brings us to this latest one that's just come out about a world without email. Now, I'm in the workspace. I use emails a lot. Matter of fact, Mindvalley also has a lot of its business based on emails. So what is the trend going on? Are you seeing that emails are failing? Should we be taking notice? What's this research and book all about? Right. So I'm using the word email in this title as a shorthand. So what I actually mean is a world without constant ad hoc, unstructured back and forth communication as being the main way that we collaborate and work. So the tool of email introduced this new way of working, where it's just back and forth, asynchronous messaging all day long. Other tools now have come along to help us do that style of work. We have Slack, we have SMS, but it's all the same style of workflow, which I call the hyperactive hive mind in that book, where let's figure everything out on the fly. I have an email address, you have an email address. Let's just rock and roll, we'll figure things out. The main argument in that book is that that style of working really clashes with the way our brain operates. So it makes us phenomenally unproductive it clashes with our psychology as social humans, so it makes us phenomenally miserable. And no one ever really sat down and decided that was a good way to work. I document how this way of constant communication, thousands of messages a week, was a sort of accidental, emergent side effect of these tools being introduced. It just happened on its own. Email decided 
this is how we should work. We didn't decide that we were going to use email to work in this way. So, you know, part one of the book makes that argument. Part two argues for we need to move past that. And the way to move past that is forget tips and tricks and hacks and batching your inbox or having better subject lines or better norms around response times or something like that. The key is we have to recognize if your underlying workflow that you run your organization is just let's figure things out on the fly, you'll never escape the email trap. So you have to actually go deep, identify the key processes in your team or in your organization or in your life as an individual. And for each of those processes, say, how do we actually want to have information come in here, out of here? How do we want to coordinate this work? You build optimized, specific, bespoke processes for the different things you do as a team, as a company, or as an individual. If you do that, you no longer have to send hundreds and hundreds of back and forth email throughout the day. And I argue that you will be producing much, much more value and be much happier once you take up that challenge. That's why I really like you, Cal. I like the way you think, and I'm loving this already. I can see what I think you're putting in as an argument, as a solution. But I want to dig more into the problem here, because when I first read, you know, this headline about like the end of email, the first things that came to mind, I was like, oh, are you going to advocate that what's better now is we're moving to Slack, we're moving to WhatsApp. Now, of course, WhatsApp's getting a bit of a backlash early in 2021. So now we're moving to Signal. Then I'm moving to Telegram. And then I have iMessage. And I'm even seeing that a lot of executives actually prefer the fast-paced communication and they they talk about like rapid innovation in a world of change and so are you seeing some arguments that are against these trends that i've also noticed in my workspace yeah i mean for one thing i don't care what the communication tool is the thing that is a problem is the underlying workflow of we can figure things out through ad hoc unstructured messaging on the fly so if it's Mm -hmm. just whether it's the HR department or me pinging a client or me saying, hey, what happened to this or sending notes back and forth, if everything just kind of happens back and forth through messaging, whether it's on WhatsApp or in Slack or an email, that does not scale beyond a small number of people. And it makes it almost impossible to work effectively. And so this idea that if we just have more communication and everyone can talk to everyone, everyone can search what everyone else is saying and everything is really transparent, the idea that this is going to somehow be enabling of a lot of value production is really is false because I get into the detail of what this does to our brain. It requires a constant context shifting because you have to service the hive mind. If you don't service the two to three dozen ongoing asynchronous conversations that are all happening in an unstructured, unpredictable way, you have to service those. The service those means you have to constantly be checking these tools. Every time you check, you're context switching from the main thing you're doing to a completely different distracting context then back again. And that is a cognitive disaster. There's a basically a neuronal pileup that happens in your brain that significantly reduces your cognitive capacity. And it also plays on psychological features of our social landscape that makes us miserable and anxious. It's really a terrible way to take a bunch of human brains and say, what's the best way to have these human brains work together to produce value? To say these brains have to constantly service these ad hoc, never ceasing communication channels is really like an invention from a mad scientist lab to frustrate actual productivity. I think we are working at 20% of our capacity to produce things because of this underlying commitment to the hyperactive hive mind is how we organize our work. Now, I'm going to do a little toss out to the people who are listening live. We're doing a little poll here is that I'd like to know from one to 10, how much of a problem what we're talking about is for you in your organization, 10 being that it is a massive problem and one that it's not a problem at all. What I'm already assuming this is going to be is what you're talking about massive problem for me. 
I've witnessed it within organization. It's almost like there's a tendency or a laziness within the way we operate. It's almost like we default to this ad hoc because it seems easy. There's no resistance, anything I need, especially. And here's where I'll kind of reveal it. When I'm operating and managing my team members, I want to send them ad hoc random anytime I think of something. I want to do it like that. Yet when I'm on the receiving end of it, I hate it. And so I'm obviously a bit of a double standard here. And as a leader, I'm trying to see how do I start like if I'm an employee, my leader's always dumping things on me like this via email, via WhatsApp or whatever the communication. How do you start making the case of doing something better? I'm seeing most of the people that are watching live are talking about nines, tens, and a lot of fives, six, sevens. So it's obviously a huge problem. Yeah. How do I start getting like executives to be more motivated to do something better? And what does that better path look like? Right. First of all, you're absolutely right that one of the reasons why the hive mind is so entrenched is because it is easier. It's flexible, it is natural, and it's convenient, right? It takes the way that you and I would just naturally coordinate if we were just out in a paleolithic savanna hunting a saber-toothed tiger together. It would be ad hoc unstructured communication. Hey, go that way, come back, watch out for that. So it's taking something that's very natural, but scaling it to too many people where it no longer actually functions. It's also very cheap. I interviewed a bunch of these sort of computer-supported collaborative work specialists who were doing work in the 90s, the early 90s, and they were building these custom productivity applications for computer networks. And they said all of their work was made superfluous because of email. Like, we can kind of just do this all with email, one tool to learn, one server to buy. And it is a pain to actually rip out this workflow from the roots and build new processes. Here's how we deal with clients. Here's how we deal with producing marketing memoranda. Here's how we deal with accounts receivable, right? This is a huge pain. The message, though, that I give to business leaders is that if you look at the history of economic productivity, the ways of getting value out of your capital that are most productive are always a bigger pain than what is convenient. And if we look at the industrial sector, that was the case with the assembly line. I mean, I detail this in the book, but the way we were building cars pre-assembly line was basically the physical equivalent of the hyperactive hive mind. It was called the craft method. It was flexible, easy, and natural. You had a group of craftsmen sit around a single chassis up on sawhorses so they didn't have to bend over, and you built a car. And if you want to scale it up, you had five groups of craftsmen each building a car. To go from that to an assembly line. The assembly line is a massive pain. It costs more money. You need more managers. It's hard to get right. If you don't get it quite right, there's hard edges. Bad things could happen. You're too fast on the steering wheel and the whole line comes to a stop. But it was 100x more productive. And I use that analogy, not that I think the assembly line is something that you want to do a knowledge worker. Of course not. That was terrible for the workers. But just to hit the more general point, which is what is most productive, what's going to be most sustainable and produce the most value, sometimes is way more of a pain than what's natural or easy. And so that's the way I like to talk about this. It's like, yeah, there's more overhead involved in actually figuring out and optimizing how we do this and how we do that and how we do this, to have a transparent task board, to have a work in progress limit. So even though I really want to just throw this stuff on your plate because I don't want it on my plate, I can't because I can see what's on your plate and it's too much already. And so we're going to have to do something else to figure out what to do. All of that's a pain, but you could get the assembly line equivalent of, yeah, but we're producing 10x better stuff. Our clients are happier, our writing is sharper, our products are coming out quicker, we're servicing our consumers better. I mean, you get much better performance if you actually say, what's the right way to do this stuff? And for almost every type of knowledge work, simply saying, let's just hook everyone up to an inbox and rock and roll. 
that digital era craft method is starting to show its edges, its rough edges. It's becoming creaky. It's not scaling. It's not sustainable. Well, you mentioned a key word here with the scaling here. So I'd want to maybe make an argument on the other side, which is there was some of the people that were saying, hey, you know, in my case, it's not a problem when I look at the audience here. And I'm feeling like that might be the case when you're a very small team. This ad hoc, I feel like it actually has a room only if you're not scaling or if you're a small team, but there must be a point where it's like, okay, now it becomes a threshold. Is that even a a right hypothesis here? And if so, is there a number of people that it becomes, okay, now it's a problem? I go through this research in more detail in the book, but three to five, right? Mm. So if there's three of you, you're like, yeah, there's three of us that are working on a project and now we're, we're maybe we're remote because of the pandemic or something that can work fine. Like we have a Slack channel open or if we're in the same room, like we would naturally, yeah, Hey, you grab this. What are you doing? You can look over, see what's going on. The same room's a little better because you can look at people's body language to see if they're concentrating or not. Works fine. 10 people, you start to have a problem. There we go. So for those of you who really want to scale, and what I would want to make as an argument here is that the ad hoc, you can get away with it. But if you're here, you're listening to superhumans at work, you're obviously someone that wants to do more than average. You want to make an impact. And this is going to be one of the biggest things you can implement when it comes to maximizing the output that you make. And also you're talking also, Cal, about the anxiety levels and the kind of emotional toll that that brings on. Can you dig a bit more about that? Because as you're having this conversation, all I'm having is kind of like micro traumatic memories coming up about how I hated getting all these messages, being in a bunch of groups and seeing this ad hoc. It emotionally had a toll on me. You must be covering a lot of that in the book as well. Yeah. Well, I have a whole chapter called email is making us miserable. And I think this is a point that is not examined or discussed enough. But this hyperactive hive mind workflow clashes with our human psychology in a sort of insidious way. And it makes people anxious and it makes people unhappy. There's several different reasons for it. One is just the idea, just the idea of there's communication piling up, each of which represents another human who I know, who wants something from me, is asking me something, trying to talk to me, and I'm ignoring it. And it's piling And there's more and more of those. And when I'm sitting here, you know, on the Mind Valley chat, more piling up, that causes a huge amount of anxiety, even though the frontal part of your brain knows like, no, we've got norms and it's fine. And there's there's no response expected within 24 hours. And most of them aren't urgent. The deeper social networks that have been there for a very long time, they don't know about email norms. What -hmm. they think of when they think of an email inbox is you're at the tribal fire and someone is tapping you on the shoulder, and you are ignoring them. And because of that, they might not give you food next time there's a famine and you're going to starve. And that makes you anxious. And it sounds crazy, but those circuits are firing when you see this inbox always rising. Also, context switching is a huge apparatus that goes into motion, right? So in our deep history, you're not constantly switching what you're looking at back and forth, back and forth. You're like, look, I'm looking at this thing right now for a while. Now there's a noise. I'm going to completely attend to that and see if it's a bear or something Then slowly bring it back. For a lot of reasons I get into the book, you're short-circuiting this wiring when you do quick checks of email inboxes or Slack. Now the average knowledge worker in the one big study I cited is going to check their email inbox once every six minutes on average. So you're constantly context switching, seeing all these unresolved obligations, people who need you, but you can't get back to them all. And then you're trying to bring your attention back to what you're doing again and again and again and again, makes us miserable, makes us anxious, makes us fatigued. 
mean, everyone knows that feeling of when you kind of like you're in email and you're skipping a bunch because it's too much to answer and trying to find the easy ones to answer and trying to go back to work. You just feel really drawn down. I'll tell you who doesn't feel like that. Someone who, let's say, is like an artist in the studio who's spending six hours just working on the one thing without distraction. The athlete that's locked in on what they're doing. The writer who's been a the typewriter like Hemingway and Key West for the last seven hours. You don't feel that way when you're trying to work on one thing at a time and do it well. And so email is really a misery-making machine. We ignore that. We're just like, yeah, work is hard, but it is an unforced error. Work does not need that misery to be effective. Wow. Okay. Well, I think for everybody listening, you're seeing that we're probably all feeling a similar pain point here. There's obviously a lot of drain and you're seeing people getting burnouts. And I feel like these are the kinds of activities that usually lead to it. And you talked about the North Star here and a bit of a way out, which I am very enthusiastic about. We're talking about like having processes, having ways that when this information's flowing, like we're talking about restricting what's this new thing. Are we talking a lot about this process documentation and just like making sure that an email just doesn't need to be sent out anymore? And how does that change shift? You look at the different processes relevant to your work and you say, what is the right way for information to come in and out of here and to coordinate the work that needs to be done on this information? And what you're generally looking for when you're optimizing these processes is to minimize the amount of context shifts required to actually produce the output. So if it's going to require a dozen back and forth emails for us to execute this process and produce something we need, that's a dozen times I'm going to have to send an email. I might have to do a dozen checks before each of those emails because I'm waiting to hear back from you in that ping pong. So you've just created 144 distractions, 144 times I have to take my attention from one thing and put it on something else. If we have a different process where it's like, look, you just put the memorandum, it goes into this Dropbox by the end, COB Monday, and I put any questions I have in Dropbox paper by COB Tuesday, and then Friday mornings or whatever, I look at your answers and I file the memorandum or something like that. You've now created something in which there is basically no email exchanges needed. You have what two context switches to check it once, check it twice, and upload it. A little bit more of a pain, a little bit more overhead to get that right but you have just significantly reduced the cognitive impact of that one particular process. Do that for all of the processes in a team or in your personal work life. And you can do this even if you work at a big company, you can optimize your end of processes to try to minimize these without having to be too heavy handed about telling everyone what you're up to. I get into that in the book. There's a lot you can do even as a cog in a machine with a boss who doesn't want to hear it. You can still reduce the hyperactive hive mind's footprint in your life. But you do this as much as you can for most of the processes. Suddenly, and this is the goal, your email inbox becomes more like our old physical mailboxes. It's useful. You check it once or twice a day. It's where, you know, you're waiting for this file. Someone's going to send it there. It's where blast about the new company parking policy is going to be sent. But it's not at the center of what it means to work. So I'm saying there's obviously a little bit of a training that has to happen in a ramp up, which is normal for any new habit. But another side effect that I'm all seeing if you're actually starting to mature your processes, like doing what you just said, is you almost like you take away leeway for some of the B and C players that could get away with lower levels of productivity because of the back and forth. And now you're putting a lot more of like expectations and training. So I feel like in an organization where everybody's an A player, this works flawlessly. But in an organization where you might have some people that might not be as high performance, it's kind of going to uncover these low performance type of habits or employees in the process. Is this a trend that you've noticed through the research? Yeah. And it's a real fear a lot of people have. And I think it is a justified one. 
So as you get more structured, as you get more clear about how things work, how things are assigned, how you collaborate, you get a lot more out of minds. It's a lot less immiserating, but it does take away the places to hide. Now, for a lot of reasons, in a lot of cases, that's good, right? So it gets rid of sort of social loafing. You're like, I don't really do a lot of work because I get away with it if I just sort of answer emails really quick or something like that. But there's other cases where it might create problems and you need to deal with those problems perhaps more explicitly. The pandemic is a great example of this. A lot of people, a lot of working parents who maybe live in a place where their kids have been sent home from school, now they're trying to work while juggling having kids home from school. They could leverage all of the inefficiency and obfuscation in the hyperactive hive mind to kind of get away with the reality that they're going to have to do much less work. But their bosses don't really want to acknowledge that. They don't want to talk about it. No one wants to deal with it. So we just sort of obfuscate and we kind of get away with it in the hive mind. If you were using a really optimized process-based system, that wouldn't work. You would have to have a really frank conversation. Like, this is what's happening. We have to change expectations. We have to accommodate this. This is an emergency. So it's an important and somewhat fraught point. For better or for worse, and I think sometimes it's for better and sometimes it's for worse, the inefficiency and obfuscation of the hyperactive hive mind allows a lot of people to get away with doing a lot less. And there are implications when you get rid of that capability. Mm. So I feel like in a workplace where you're actually maturing these processes, of course, you're listening to this. I'm assuming you're already someone striving to be a superhuman. This actually is a great initiative that allows you to actually step up. And I would say if you're the person spearheading these initiatives, there's going to be huge amounts of recognition. And if you're going to the leadership team with these ideas about how you can increase that efficiency, you can have a better performance evaluation for the people that are working on the things that actually move the needle for the company. These all seem amazing for the leadership team to hear and allows you to mature. And then you're going to end up happier in the process as well. There's a lot of upsides, I would say, to this. And it's exciting to hear. And so are you seeing some of the major hiccups that people are having as they transition to this more mature process and some things we should look out for as we try to initiate these? Well, process design is really hard. The road to better processes is littered with overzealous attempts to change everything all at once by handing down new processes from up above and there's rebellion from underneath and it doesn't really work. So I caution sort of patience and incrementalism, process by process. You can start with processes that you largely control or just get your end going. As you move to a broader process that affects a lot of people, everyone needs to be involved. You know, here is our goal. We're trying to minimize this. I think that's really important. It's also important to have a culture from the top down. We want more structure. We do not want all this context shifting, we do not want a thousand messages a day. This is not a good way to use human brains. And that culture has to reinforce occasional bad things is fine, right? This is one of the things that really trips up this process. And it's really a historical because it goes against the whole history of productivity in other sectors of our economy. People get really stuck on this notion of like, well, if I don't have this complete flexibility, what if I miss something? What if there's an opportunity that goes past? What if you need something and I don't get it to you in time because I didn't expect you'd need it at that time and you couldn't get in touch with me and something is late? And the idea is that's okay. You were looking for the overall output to be optimized. That probably is going to involve maybe you have more minor bad things that happen. Just like with the assembly line, those assembly lines get stuck a lot. Right? It's really easy to get those miscalibrated and one section moves faster than the other. Or someone drops something and they get stuck. They get stuck a lot. That's a bad thing that's happening. But you'd still rather have a really effective process to get stuck on a regular basis 
than be doing a very ineffective process that's very flexible and nothing bad ever happens. Brilliant. Cal, thank you so much for coming here and sharing all these insights. I know we're going to have a lot of fun in the Q&A here with the guests that are watching live. For those who are on the podcast, of course, if you want to join these live calls where we have these conversations, go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, and you'll be able to become a member and join these live conversations. But what I want to recap here that was really important is we went over Cal's work. And you know some of the big things about finding the work that matters and the skills you want to develop is where it started. Then we discovered that these concentration blocks like deep work is really what makes you make some amazing work. And so pick up deep Deep work if this is something that you're working on. And I see how all of this is connected because then we talked about how to apply digital minimalism. These are all these distractions that come into your life and you want to minimize that so you can be more focused on the work that you need to do. This latest book about the world without email is how do you make that actual important work mature in the way the processes work. All these backs and focus and this hive mind concept that Cal spoke about in the interview here is just a very easy way for us to do work, but it's not the most effective way to do work. I love the comparison with the assembly line, which yes, it requires initial effort up front to make that shift. But the moment you do it, people are going to be happier. People are going to be more productive. You're going to see the results on the bottom line, and you're going to see the results with the people that actually work. As a superhuman that's listening to this podcast, I know that you're an A player or striving to be an A player. So seeing these improvements is something that's going to make your life better. And for those who are maybe not at the level of output that you would expect from the role that they're playing are going to be quickly identified, and you'll be able to reskill them, retrain them, or see what are the different ways that they can contribute to the organization because everything will be more exposed. Some of the ways to make these back and forth disappear is having the processes that really make you understand what is the key information that needs to be transferred and how do you build a process around it that it doesn't require that back and forth. There's a lot more of these examples I'm sure are going to be provided in the book. So definitely go and pick up that book. It's just released on March 2nd, 2021. And so we're going to put a link in the show notes so you can grab a copy for yourself. Cal, once again, thank you so much for coming here and sharing this incredible insights. This is so valuable. I love your work. It's so valuable here at Mind Valley and addresses real problems within the workplace and in our lives. And I think for everybody listening, this is going to give us some more inspiration about the things that frustrate us the most, that there is actually a solution. So thank you. Well, thank you. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, you get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.